Okay, quiet on the set, everybody. Stand by. Roll camera. Speed. Roll sound. Speed. Market. And cue talent. Hello and welcome to This Week in Production, the podcast. I'm your host, Art Aldridge. And this week, I am frantically finishing my prep for the Iditarod Sled Dog Race. And the prep for this has just been an absolute roller coaster. You'll be hearing more about the Iditarod over the next three or four weeks because I will basically be immersed 24-7 in broadcasting this dog sled race from Alaska. And I'll give you a little bit of backstory so you can understand. I got involved originally with the Iditarod via Panasonic. I was working as a consultant. They were getting ready to launch their tapeless HD video camera called the HVX200. It was a remarkable little camera. It was the first tapeless solid state recording camera on the market. It was high def and it had some cool features like overcrank and, and things you couldn't really do on, on tape easily. And the Iditarod, which is a thousand mile dog sled race in Alaska, um, reached out to Panasonic and said, listen, this would be a great camera for us to use in, you know, sub zero temperatures. And, um, you know, maybe you want to try it out and we'd love to try it out for you. And the product manager for the camera at that time was a wonderful woman named Jane Crittenden. Many of you uh, in the business know her. She was a, a very vocal and active um, product manager and she'd listened to community feedback. She was already involved in bringing some great cameras to the market like the DVX100, the HVX200, you know, many, many products that she had a, a hand in, in uh, shaping. Jan was asked by the Iditarod to uh, supply some cameras. And Jan thought about it, said this would be a great test, but you, we can't just like send you a camera because you're not going to understand the whole workflow. So she had a few consultants, myself and a, a few other people who were sort of on the payroll. And she brought us in and said, listen, you know, we'd like to do this and we would like you guys to help them use the gear, make sure they know the workflow, make sure the cameras work properly. And so literally within like a three month window, we were getting, we were outfitted with equipment, cold weather equipment. We had a plan of attack to go up and not only help them to use the camera and the technology because the, the back end workflow was also part of it. But we were also to be producing some clips for the Panasonic website, and this was also pre-leading up to NAB. So the idea was we'd have all these great experiences and stories to tell them, and we would go to NAB, and we would showcase the success that the camera would be. So it was all a very uh, frantic and, and exciting and challenging uh, project. But that was my first experience with Iditarod. And that first year, I want to say we maybe had six or eight consultants that went up to support the race. And it was great. Everything worked out well, and the cameras were a hit. And to this day, the Iditarod actually still uses P2 equipment. 
some things happened. PETA, you know, started attacking advertisers and Panasonic sort of pulled back some of their support. So the next year we went back up and we provided cameras, but it was a little more low key and it was less of us. And then by the third year, the race said, listen, um, you know, we'd like you to still come up and help us. We'll just hire you directly because, you know, Panasonic's not going to foot the bill anymore. Are you interested? And I said, yes. And 13 years later, I am still involved. Although my role has evolved, I was originally there at more like on the uh, camera setup, metadata, and then post-production workflow. My role really has evolved into uh, broadcasting, live streaming, and, and content creation. So this year, which, as I said, will be my 13th race, will be the biggest um, show of force in live streaming that we've done. In previous years, we've relied on local broadcast partners to produce a uh, what they call a ceremonial start, which is in downtown Anchorage, the big city in uh, Alaska. And that's a very uh, fun and colorful event, but it's just ceremonial. The dogs run through the streets and then they, uh, you know, pack up. And then Sunday they travel north about 100 miles and that's the official start. So there's a restart, there's a uh, ceremonial start, and then there's a, a finish that have live shows. We've relied on host broadcasters in the past to provide that stream for us. We just take the signals and we broadcast it to the Iditarod website. The Iditarod website has a, a paid subscription service called the Insider. The Iditarod Insider is where the um, Iditarod, which is a not-for-profit, generates revenue. So for $33.95, give or take, you get to watch all of the coverage, the live coverage, plus there's a crew of six or eight camera uh, cameramen and editors who go out, who produce uh, packages every day. And by the end of the race, there's hundreds and hundreds of little packages, live streams, uh, fan Q&A, live finish cameras. You get a whole suite of um, content. The race takes about two weeks from, from the restart to the finish. The winner usually finishes in nine days. And then the the rest of the field, which might be anywhere from 40 to 75 mushers, will come in, you know, uh, slowly after that. Usually about two weeks for the last musher to finish, which is called the Red Lantern. The Red Lantern musher is the last musher off the trail. The last piece of content is the musher awards banquet at the end of the race. That's usually the Sunday after Red Lantern. And we broadcast that live, and then we cut that up into content, and then everybody goes back home. So for me, this is about a three-and-a-half-week job on-site. And then, of course, there's all of the prep and preparation and planning that is literally months and months of work if I edit up all the time over, over the year. It's an interesting project. It's, it's great. It's high visibility. It's, it's a phenomenal experience. The, the race is mainly run by volunteers. This includes 
veterinarians, dog handlers, uh, support people in the field. People basically plan their vacations to come up on their own dime and work on this race. And there's just this really cool vibe among the volunteers, and they, they really do a tremendous job putting this race on, making sure it's, it's safe and, and everything goes smoothly. So from that standpoint, it's a great project. The problem is that it's, it's a not-for-profit. The budgets are limited. We have to make the most of what we can given the resources that they have. So the best bang for the buck that we can squeeze out of every idea is, is the method. And so it's high visibility, it's this great experience, but it's, it's like just a huge, huge amount of time. Way more time than I'm actually compensated for, but it's, you know, it's the nature of doing the job. And like I said, I, this is my 13th year. We always kind of joke like, oh, this is my last one, I'm done, because there's these roller coasters uh, of emotions, the highs and the lows and the sleep deprivation and the technology crashes and then the successes and it's it's a roller coaster so from that standpoint it's it's its own unique beast but it is a good break from kind of the normal corporate stuff that i do day in and day out but it is it is a big chunk of my life especially that three or four weeks that i'm physically out of state I know my wife doesn't always like it when I'm gone for such a long period of time. And usually there's a big snowstorm the day or two after I leave. You know, you know how that goes if you travel a lot um, from home. So this year, I've been prepping for producing more live content. This year, we're not using the full resources of the host broadcaster. There's a new broadcast agreement. There's a new broadcast partner. Last year and in previous years, the host, the broadcast partner, produced the ceremonial start coverage, the restart coverage, and the finish coverage. This year, they're just producing the ceremonial start coverage, but that's in conjunction with, with my group, and so it's like a co-production, and then we're producing on our own the restart and the finish shows. So there's going to be more demand on live production and the equipment packages needed and the resources. So we've got a few more pieces that I've put together in the kit. And it's a very, it's, it's a portable, very portable kit. It's evolved over time. But basically this year, it's going to be three robotic cameras and one or two uh, smaller handheld cameras that can work on wireless. As I've mentioned in previous podcasts, I'm, I'm using a new fiber-based system for my robotic cameras. This robotic system is something I saw at NAB a year ago. The price point was good. The feature set looked good. It seemed like it was a great solution for um, using PTZs over long distances. And so I've got a little kit now that includes a, um, a network. I got like a network rack, which is a power over Ethernet switch. It's a router for the Internet. It's got a little computer in it for some of the pieces of software I need to run to, to manage services. And then I've got a recording rack, 
which is basically three HyperDeck minis that are set up to um, ISO record the cameras, and they record to ProRes on memory cards, and they get audio embedded in them, and that little rack is just to do ISO recording. And then I've got a laptop which runs a piece of software called Wirecast, which is made by Telestream. And it's a piece of software I've used for many, many years, though I started off only using it to do some simple camera streaming for my user group, the Final Cut Pro user group I ran in New Jersey. But now I'm using the, the software at a much more advanced level, IP cameras, baseband cameras. I've got a, um, a laptop, but I've got a Sonnet chassis, which has a Decklink card in it. I can bring the, the robotic cameras in baseband. I can also bring the robotic cameras in over NDI. So I sort of have a, a backup system in case something goes wrong in the baseband or in the NDI. I can run the whole thing NDI if I don't want to haul all the gear. And I can really go right now the same distance on Cat5 Ethernet or on fiber. My fiber reels are 328 feet each. I can extend them and I can get longer reels. But right now I have 328 feet. I have successfully used NDI over that distance on a Cat5 cable. So really I could go either way but it's a better system, more robust, if I'm using the fiber. At least that's my theory. I'm using it for the first time. This was a system, like I said, I saw at NAB. I, I thought about it for a while. I started doing more and more live stream work. I like the idea of a simple, single cable to provide power, Ethernet connectivity, and video. So from a you know corporate set up. It's a lot cleaner to use a single cable system. So I, I did invest in it, ordered it in October. I told this story how it didn't arrive until mid-January. I missed my opportunity to test it on a smaller job in Minnesota. So in the, in the weeks since that Minnesota uh, smaller dog race that we did called the Bear Grease, I've been setting up the equipment in my yard uh, which my neighbors probably think I'm absolutely insane. I had robotic cameras spread out all over the place. I had cables run across the driveway, and, and it looked probably pretty strange. But I did test it. Wouldn't you know, I discovered a problem with the fiber units. The fiber units consist of a what they call a dock, which is like the head unit. It's where the power comes out to send down the cables and it has the video outputs from the box plus the network input uh, to bring everything on the same network. So that lives in, in one of my racks. And then there's a, uh, a decode, encode unit they call a monk, the PTZ monk, which sits at the camera side. And that's the interface between the fiber and the, the rest of the connections. So I discovered unhappily, that the Monk wouldn't power two of my three cameras. I have two Panasonic HE-130 cameras. I've got one UN-70 camera, which is a smaller camera, and the smaller camera powers fine. The HE-130 cameras, not so much. It would flicker. It wouldn't deliver enough power. So this is, you know, February, 
And I'm now a little frantic about getting this ready for March. So I communicate with the company, which is based in the Netherlands. Of course, there's a six or seven hour time zone difference and all of this stuff. And they've been, in fairness, they've been very accommodating to help me. It's just I wish it would have been right out of the box. So they determined after some testing on their end that the initial power draw on the camera was higher than the threshold set in the Monk to provide power to the cameras. So they sent me three new boxes, which arrived two days ago. And so I got the new boxes, I tested them out, and two of them are great. Two of them work as advertised. The third one has a different problem. So I had to basically figure out Okay, this one of these new boxes has to go back. I'll keep one of the old boxes that worked that could power up at least the little camera. So I've got a working system, but not, not perfectly uh, set up the way I would like. So that was a little bit of a, a go back and forth. You know, you talk about like frustrations of, you know, vendors supplying products that you need and like I said I've been out in front of this for you know months and months and months I try not to wait to the last minute but certain things you know that you need as you start your build out your testing so I decided to get some new BNC cables shorter length flexible for the cold weather to connect from the um, back of the fiber chassis to the front of my rack just so you don't have to reach inside the rack to wire up the connectors. I've got a little BNC jack panel on the front. So I'm like, okay, I need, you know, eight um, three-foot BNC cables made from this Belden flexible wire. No problem. I go to markertech.com, which is a big mail order broadcast supply store, which I've, you know, spent hundreds of not thousands of dollars with o over the years and they're normally pretty good they're in new york they're not far from me physically but they're they're a mail order business and i order the cables and the cables are um, not in stock they say it might be three to seven days to deliver and i call them up i said listen i need these in two days can you do it and I, I speak to a nice gentleman. He tells me that they can do it. They have to charge me a rush fee of $25. Okay, fine. Like, what are you going to do? But I uh, place the order. And I tell him I need it to ship Tuesday for Wednesday. And it usually gets here in one day. And it should all be good. Tuesday comes along and I don't get any uh, shipping notification, which has my ears on uh you know high alert and then i'm like well maybe they just didn't send me a shipping label so wednesday nothing comes call them up and they're like oh um, it says that they'll be available at the end of the week i said but we spoke about this and i paid a rush fee and you told me that they could deliver it on this date and I'm like yeah well he didn't even say we're sorry he just said, yeah, I don't know. 
and I was doing my best not to unload my frustration on this gentleman. But I said, listen, I need the cables today. I will send someone up to your warehouse to pick them up. I need them today. Let me see if we can do that for you, sir. Yes, please go see if you can deliver on what you told me you could do already. He called me back like two hours later. He says, yeah, we can do it. Um, you can pick them up today. I don't know when, but blah, 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 blah. So luckily, my college son had no class yesterday. And I said, here's the address. Get in the car, drive an hour and a half, pick up the box, bring it back. So that all worked out, but it was very frustrating when I was told, you know, I did my due diligence and asked, paid, the rush, the whole bit, and then they didn't deliver. And I'm, I'm still upset by that because that, that is a frustration. Unlike the company in the Netherlands who has really bent over backwards to get me the pieces I needed, you know, granted it was at the 11th hour, but they still were much more um, considerate in handling my problem. This Markertech, I mean, didn't even apologize, didn't even offer an explanation. So I'm a little upset by that. Um, not much I can do about it except maybe complain to customer service. But uh, here I am two days before I'm leaving. I've gone through the cases. I have to cable wrap a few cables. I have to weigh all the cases. So I'm traveling with about 10 road cases. I'm going to travel to Newark Airport with these cases. I'm going to load them on the plane, which is really the cheapest way to get the gear anywhere you're going. It's $50 a case as a media case, and there's no limit to the number of media cases you can have. If I were to put this on uh, a commercial carrier like FedEx or UPS, it would be like $1,000 or more to ship this one way. And I'll probably wind up paying $300, maybe $400 to ship all these pieces. I get you know, a certain number of bags free, get six free with two people, you know, three each. So six bags free plus some luggage. So uh, it'll wind up being about $300, I think, in baggage fees one way. We'll get the stuff into Alaska. We'll do our setup. A week yesterday will be our first broadcast, which will be the what they call the bib draw, the order that the mushers will start. We'll be doing a broadcast from the convention center where that's held. And then a week from tomorrow is the ceremonial start. Then Sunday is the restart. Then we have you know multiple cameras out in the trail in these what we call fly packs where the cameras have encoders and are plugged into broadband internet where it's available, and they beam it back to my uh, production office in Anchorage. I mix the signals, and then it streams out to the world. So that'll happen, and then there's the finish of the race, which is somewhere around the, I think, the 19th or uh the 17th of March, and then we have the rest of the finishers. So there's lots and lots of live streaming, lots and lots of production, lots of media being wrangled. I've got a couple of my key guys, Tom Chartrand is on this, and Christian Schlicht, who you've heard on a previous podcast episode as well. He'll be there for the first time. 
I'll do be doing lots of interviews with the crew that works on this big production. Uh, you heard in a previous podcast from Greg Heister. He is the producer of the race. He's also the sort of the host, the on-camera host of the event. He's been involved in it really from the beginning. I've spoken to him on a previous podcast, but we'll be talking a lot with his crew. I'll try to bring you stories from this crazy race. I mean, it's it's got drama. It's got <laughs> all kinds of conflicts and tensions and, and problems and hurdles and all this stuff that is a normal production. But this is even on a different level than that. And, uh, you know, we'll bring those stories to you over the next two or three weeks. If all goes well, I will have tested out not only my fiber connectivity systems, this will also be the first time I'm using the Unity cloud-based intercom. There was some hurdles with that that I would think I have a solution for. This will be used for crew communications, but it will also be used for talent IFB. I've got a way of rigging a, a workaround to feed program audio into one of the channels. So hopefully this will be a nice solution for comms and for IFB. I'll be using this at the start and the restart and the finish on Wi-Fi. I've got special ubiquity mesh network antennas that I'm using to generate a production network over you know a wider area. And then on the trail when the camera crews are out they're going to be on their phones on Wi-Fi at their little hotspots, and those communications will all go to the cloud, and I'll be able to communicate with them, and they'll be able to communicate with me, and hopefully that will have proven itself out. Again, this is the great thing about the Iditarod is I get to play with new technology and see what works and what doesn't work. I'm hopeful that this will be a good solution. The price point is good. The feature set seems right. You know, the fact that you can use your phone as a base unit, you can use your AirPods as your headset, all seems good. We'll find out if it crashes and burns or it goes great. You never know. So I have some exciting news. I have limited edition This Week in Production t-shirts that I just printed up and received. And I'm going to give three away to the best three production stories. They could be funny, they could be tragic, anything you want to share. The best three stories, I will send uh, free t-shirts to you. You can send it via email, thisweekinproduction at gmail.com, or you can call the voice mailbox and leave your story there. 601-564-8947, which is TWIP. So 601 564 TWIP and you can leave a voicemail there. I will listen to the stories. We'll use the stories on the podcast at some point and I will send you a t-shirt if I pick your story as one of the three best. So please send them in. Let's hear what you got to say. The next time I speak with you, I will be in Alaska. So for now, that's a wrap on this week in production. A reminder that This Week in Production is available on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, 
iTunes, and Google Play. So please subscribe to get every episode. Lastly, if you like what you hear, would you mind giving me a rating or a review? I'd appreciate that.